Resurrection Sunday. Let me read this passage. We've been going through, if you've been with us for a while, we've been going through uh, the Gospel of Luke. And, and I wanted to anchor our, our time in this text this morning in the Gospel of Luke uh, as we've been making our way towards the cross, towards this most special moment, the resurrection. And here it is in Luke chapter 24. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. I think I have it on the screen behind me if you don't have a Bible. It says this, but on the first day of the week, that's today, the first day of the week at early dawn, uh, they went to the tomb. They, meaning uh, this group of women, they went to the tomb taking spices they had prepared and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened, the the women bowed their heads to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you seek the living among the dead? Why Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee. So these, these men in dazzling clothes are reminding these women, don't you, this is exactly what he said would happen. He predicted his death. He said he would die and he said he would rise again. And scripture says in verse eight that they remembered. They remembered his words. They remembered Jesus' words. And so returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to the rest, meaning the 11 disciples. And the writer says, now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and the Mary, the mother of James and other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them, seemed to the apostles. These words seemed to these apostles as an idle tale. And they didn't believe them. But Peter, he rose and he ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. God, again, speak to us about the power of the resurrection. God, I pray for, for those who are here this morning. Um, God, no doubt in a room this size, many folks here who do not know you, uh, who are quick to dismiss the idea of the resurrection as foolishness or fairy tale. God, I pray that you would, uh, in a way that only you can do, in a way I can't do, God, but in a way only you can do, God, that you would open up their hearts, you would open up their eyes, at least to consider this question. What if it's real? And so God, speak to us this morning. God, we love you. We thank you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it, it may be comforting to know as we're reading the story that the resurrection, the, the reality of the resurrection was as unbelievable to Jesus' first disciples as it is for some of you today, Right? No one expected the resurrection. As we read the story, it's clear no one expected to find a living body. Everyone expected a dead man. Even though Jesus had predicted his own death for years, even though Jesus told them this is exactly the way it would happen, I'm going to die, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He had been saying that since the beginning. Here it is on the third day, and they're expecting to find a dead body. And they don't. These women came with ceremonial spices to anoint a body. They expected the stone to be in place. They were shocked. They were terrified with what they saw. They were, they were shocked and terrified that the tomb was emptied. Even, even the apostles, right? 
The apostles. Come on, guys. The apostles who had been with Jesus, who knew Jesus, who shared meals with Jesus, who had seen him perform all these miracles. Even his disciples, when confronted with, with the possibility of the, rex- the resurrection, thought, this is an idle tale. This is too good to be true, right? It seems foolish to believe. Peter himself, it says, he went home marveling at what had happened. No one in this story, no one in this story expected the resurrection. And yet, church, let me tell you, this was and is the most critical issue for us today. How we respond to this reality of Jesus' resurrection Writer John Stott, who I'm sure many of you have read, he put it this way, Christianity is, in its very essence, a resurrection religion. Christianity is, in its very essence, a resurrection religion. This concept of the resurrection lies at its very heart. And so if you remove it, if you remove this idea of the resurrection, if you cast it aside, Christianity is destroyed. And so the challenge of the resurrection, the the fundamental question regarding the resurrection is this. Did it really happen? Did it really happen? Now, of course, we know and Scripture says that this is a a belief embraced by faith. It is a great mystery, this this amazing work of God to, to bring life back from the dead. And yet, I want to tell you, the historical evidence is on our side, church. One writer put it this way, that there, there are three fundamental lines of evidence that intertwine to convince us that Jesus actually did raise from the dead. He rose from the dead. He, he, we see it in a few things. We see the empty tomb. We're going to go through these each one by one. We see the eyewitnesses that saw the risen Lord in Scripture, and we see the fundamental transformation of Jesus' disciples and really for the church throughout history. So what about this empty tomb? What was really going on? If Jesus didn't, if he wasn't resurrected, what was really going on with this empty tomb? Where was the body, right? That's the fundamental question. Where's the body? Now, there were actually several theories early on in the ancient world, uh, even in just the days and hours uh, following Jesus' crucifixion, about what might have happened. Those who were, those who were objecting to the faith, those who thought that it, it, the resurrection was impossible, they offered a few other scenarios. So one of the scenarios they offered was that Jesus' enemies stole the body. They stole the body. They, they, they wanted to desecrate it. They wanted to take it. It was their business. They did away with it. The, they were the only ones who could have rolled away the stone. They were the ones guarding the temple. It must have, uh, the, the tomb, it must have been Jesus' enemies who stole the body. But it really makes no sense. No one ever claimed to have Jesus' body. No one ever produced Jesus' body. And don't you see what what would have happened if they had? If Jesus' enemies would have brought forth a dead Jesus, the church is over, right? There is no church moving forward. So that doesn't hold water. What about Jesus' friends? That starts to make some sense, doesn't it? Maybe Jesus' friends stole Jesus' body. 
In fact, this was actually one of the earliest uh, um, assumptions in that day in Matthew 28. They talk about they had sort of thought that this was an early rumor that Jesus' friends took his body. But you have to ask yourself, how would how would this ragtag group of disciples, how would they overthrow the Roman guards? How, how would these, these men have preached with such authority following the resurrection? And why would they have gone to such, and we'll read about this here in a second, why would they have gone to such gruesome deaths, each one of them, for such a lie? Doesn't seem tenable, does it, church? Another suggestion, uh, another suggestion early on was that Jesus was, uh, in fact, not dead, but just unconscious. So that was the idea. He wasn't really dead. He was just unconscious. But this is highly unlikely. The man was hung on a cross for hours and hours and hours. His side was pierced. A, a, a massive stone was rolled in front of the tomb. His enemies confirmed his death. This was a dead man. The body placed in the tomb was not a wounded body. It was a dead body. And so the most plausible explanation for the empty tomb is that Jesus really did, was raised from the dead. You know, it's interesting as you read early history in the ancient world and in Israel at the time, um, there were several so-called messiahs that would show up on the scene, both before Jesus and after Jesus. These so-called messiahs would claim that they were the one that the people of Israel had been waiting for. They were the one who, they were the chosen prophet of God. They were the one who would help overthrow Roman rule and oppression and bring Israel back up to their deserved state as God's people. And they, like Jesus, started a movement. And they, like Jesus, um, were swiftly killed by the Romans. Many of these guys, before and after Jesus. But it's interesting that of all of these so-called messiahs, none of their movements lasted for more than three years. They just died off too quickly. No matter how compelling the teaching was, no matter how compelling of a leader, how charismatic of a leader the so-called Messiah may have been, because when they were killed by the Romans, they stayed dead. And so in short order, their movements died too. But not Jesus. Not Jesus. There was no body, you see. There was no dead body. There was a risen, resurrected Lord. This is the one thing that distinguishes Jesus' story from all the other stories of the so-called Messiahs, that Jesus resurrected. This is what Jesus said would happen. The disciples suffered great deal, a, a terrible deaths, confessing that this is what happened. Many eyewitnesses corroborated this is the same story. This is what happened. And so let me just say, before you dismiss as some are no doubt quick to do, before you dismiss the resurrection as an antiquated fairy tale, don't be so quick to dismiss it, but because before you do, you, you must, if you were to be intellectually honest with yourself, you have to deal with the empty tomb. Where's the body? Now, of course, maybe many of you question the idea, the story of the empty tomb altogether, right? Maybe this was just fabricated by the disciples. 
Maybe Jesus stayed in that tomb, a dead man, the stone there. Maybe none of this about the empty tomb is actually real. But that won't get you very far either. You see, all the gospel writers, all four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers each, they report that every time it was the women who were the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Okay? So all of these ancient gospel writers, they are reporting that women are the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. And the only reasonable explanation that the gospel writers would do this is if that's what actually happened. You would never do this otherwise. If you wanted to tell a convincing story, if you wanted, if you wanted to sell a convincing lie in the ancient Jewish world, you would have never made women the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. It just makes no sense. Now, to quote some ancient Jewish writers, one famous historian, Josephus, and again, this is Josephus and not Justin, he says, but let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of the levity and boldness of their sex. Their testimony can't be admitted as valid. Another uh, writer in the Talmud, the Jewish Talmud, said any evidence which a woman gives is simply not valid. One more writer put it a little bit more dramatically. What reasonable men, what reasonable men would listen to a hysterical woman? I didn't say that. My wife's not here right now, but still, for the record, I didn't say that. The gospel writers trying to sell this crazy lie of an empty tomb, of a resurrected Lord, if they wanted to have any validity, if they wanted to have any sticking power with the story, they never would have made women the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb unless that's the way it happened. Unless that's actually the way it happened. The tomb was empty. What about the eyewitnesses? What about all these people who saw Jesus resurrected? Paul mentions five appearances of the resurrection, uh, including one, one instance where Jesus is in front of 500 people at one time. The four Gospels record seven other appearances. The book of Acts tells us that for 40 days, 40, Jesus was, 40 days Jesus was roaming around, appearing to numerous, countless groups of people many of whom were still alive at the time uh, when Paul wrote and sent his letters to the churches. In ancient, in ancient culture, especially in ancient Jewish, Jewish culture, oral testimony was critical. You had to hear it from the mouth of someone who saw the thing happening. And, and here, Luke, he mentions these three women by name. Go talk to these women. Go find Mary Magdalene. Go find Joanna. Go find Mary. Mark uh, does the same thing in his gospel in chapter 15. He mentions Simon of Cyrene. He mentions Alexander. He mentions Rufus. Go ask these people. Talk to them. Jesus appeared to countless people before he ascended to the Father. And maybe most compelling for me, um, always, you know, growing up, I was a church kid and heard these stories. Uh, and then, in, of course, in, uh, in college and in seminary, realizing the, the fate that um, the disciples experienced. The disciples, they were immediately transformed. Do you know the story? 
These, these disciples were immediately transformed from, from terrified, cowardly, men who were denying Jesus, men who were hiding from the Romans, men who literally rejected Jesus out front. And almost immediately, this is what convinced me, one of the many things, almost immediately following the resurrection, every one of these men is utterly transformed. It's not the same guy anymore. It's a totally different guy. And yet every single one of these disciples, except for John, the disciple John, he died in exile. Except for John, all of these other disciples were martyred for their faith. Any one of them at any time could have rejected the Lord and said, you know what, this was a lie. This was something we fabricated. We made this up trying to create momentum for our movement. And yet here's what happened. James was killed by the sword. Peter, tradition says, was crucified upside down because he didn't feel himself worthy enough to die in the same manner as Jesus. Andrew was crucified. Thomas was thrust with pine spears and tormented with red hot plates and then burned alive. Philip was crucified. Matthew was beheaded. Bartholomew was flayed and then for good measure, crucified. James was beaten to death with a club. Simon the zealot was crucified. Judas Thaddeus was beaten with sticks. Matthias, who was the one who replaced Judas Iscariot, he was stoned while hanging on a cross. Paul, of course, was allegedly beheaded under the rule of Nero in Rome. It's unthinkable. It's unthinkable that all of these men and countless others would have given their lives for a known fraud. Would you suffer any of the things endured by the disciples for something you knew to be false? The the burden of proof against this historical evidence, against these historical facts, is on those who disbelieve the resurrection. You have to deal with the empty tomb. You have to deal with the eyewitnesses. You have to deal with the transformation of the disciples. What other explanations do you offer? And let me tell you, church, everything stands or falls for you and for me. Everything stands or falls based on what is true about the resurrection of Jesus. This is the most fundamental issue. You cannot be a Christian without confessing the historical reality of the resurrection. It just makes no sense. Christianity is a resurrection religion. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and if Christ has not been raised, if Christ just was a great teacher, a moral leader, the spiritual sage, even if he started this amazing movement in the early days, Paul says if Christ has not been raised, if he is not resurrected, Paul says of himself, our preaching, my preaching is in vain. What foolishness. What is this game that we're playing? There are better ways to spend a Sunday morning, right? But if it's true, if it's true, well, that's something. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, your faith is in vain. 
If in Christ we have hope only in this life, if this is really all there is, if it's just sentimentality and ceremony and tradition, if this is really it, Paul says, then we are to be pitied among all men. What foolishness if Jesus is not alive. Gary Habermas says that whether or not we are Christians is determined specifically by how we respond to the resurrection. Easter morning is this confrontation, right? As we encounter the empty tomb, as we encounter the eyewitnesses, as we consider the effects on the lives of the disciples, it's a confrontation of the risen Lord. How will you respond, church? How will you respond to this reality? Now, I know that there's probably many of us here who respond... um, who, who approach Jesus in the same way that these women approach Jesus on Easter morning. And they approached Jesus, they approached this tomb, not expecting much, right? They didn't expect much. They had their ceremonial spices and ointments to anoint a dead, they expected a dead body. They approached him that morning out of duty, as maybe some of you do. They approached Jesus out of ceremony, maybe as some of you do. Maybe some of us respond to the resurrection like the the disciples responded to the resurrection. We just say, that's crazy. That seems too good to be true. That's an idle tale. That's a fairy tale. The resurrection makes no sense. We just can't get our minds around it. And we're, we're so arrogant that we think if we can't get our minds around it, it must not be true. Some of us just dismiss it out of hand. How do you respond? How do you respond to the reality of the resurrection? The resurrection should produce in us uh, faith. The resurrection should produce in us humility. It should produce in us uh, worship. It should produce in us submission to God and ultimately mission on his behalf. It is a story to tell, right? Writer N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar, he put it this way. He asked this question, do you take Easter for granted? Do you take Easter for granted or have you found yourself awestruck at this strange new work of God? Look what he has done. What do we know of the risen Lord? Where is he taking us now? Where is he leading you, church? Where is he calling you? What task is he for you to undertake today? And N.T. Wright says, he is calling us to take the gospel, to share this story to the ends of the earth. You see, this was the response of the women, right, on Easter morning when they, when they were actually confronted with the reality of the empty tomb and they couldn't have, they had no other explanation for why that tomb was empty other than that this man is risen just as he said he would. They were quick to share the story, weren't they? They ran off to tell the disciples. How how could you not share that? It's the most unbelievable story. It's the most amazing story. It's the most important story. Walter Brueggemann, who's a great Old Testament uh, professor and writer, he wrote this. I was thinking of it on uh, Easter Sunday. He says, because the new life offered to us by God, because of the resurrection, silence is impossible. It makes no sense. 
Our silence, your silence, makes no sense if the resurrection is true. Paul goes on to say, I may have this on the screen here. Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, 54, death is swallowed up in victory. Isn't that beautiful language, church? Death is swallowed up in victory. And then he goes on to essentially mock death. Oh, death, where, where is your victory? Where is your sting? I'm sure, um, been a pastor for a while now. I know many of us, most of us, um, live with, with great dread about death and about sickness and about growing old and about our bodies and our minds decaying, about losing our memory, our sense of ourselves. And it is terrifying. I don't want to minimize that. It can be a terrifying thing. But when you come to grasp the reality of the resurrection, no matter how frail our bodies are, no matter how frail our minds are, no matter what we face in this life, Paul can say, we can say, by the truth of the scripture, where is your sting? Where is your victory in my life? Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a line in a poem that I always uh, remember during this time of year, during Holy Week. It's by Wendell Berry, who's a great poet. Some of you probably read. Um, Wendell Berry, it's just, this, it's just this short phrase buried in this long poem, but it's always stuck with me so profoundly. Wendell Berry says this, practice resurrection. Isn't that a powerful phrase? Practice resurrection. What does that mean? I don't really know what it means, but I'll tell you what I think it means. That's the good thing about art, right? It's your interpretation. When I hear that phrase, that powerful phrase, practice resurrection, what I think that means, what it means for me is that now I can, I can face all the suffering in my life. I can face all the pain in my life. I can face all the loss in my life with some hope. That I can face evil in my life with forgiveness. That's not an easy thing to do. I can face death without fear. It means that we can all, it means that our cancer and our divorce and our deep-seated doubt and our anger and the pain of losing a child, all the hurt of betrayal, all the humiliation of bankruptcy, all of that pain, all of that suffering, and I am not minimizing it. It's not that that is weak. It's not that that is small. It's that the resurrection is so great that even all of those things, how, how, how tough they are, how difficult they are to get through, how overwhelming they feel, in fact, they feel unbeatable to us, don't they? As you practice resurrection, as you believe the resurrection, you can realize that those things don't have to crush you. And not only that, they don't have to define you. That doesn't have to be who you are. Because the resurrection, don't you see? All the death in our life is just the beginning those things seem so unbeatable, and yet Jesus, Scripture says, he, he has declawed the enemy, right? 
St. Augustine put it this way, death is for those who have faith. Death is for those who have faith. In effect, dead. Dead. It lacks all power because the lion is slain. Jesus says in John chapter 11, I am the, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Some of you may be grown up in church like I did, uh, maybe your whole life. Maybe you've, you've, you've been every Sunday since then. Maybe you're just coming back around. And I know that sometimes that familiarity, it just turns the volume down on that power, right? Listen to what Jesus is saying. He's, he's looking at his friends. He's looking at his enemies. He's looking at people who would betray him. He's looking at people who would kill him. And he's looking at them and he says, you know what? I am, I am the resurrection. I am the power over everything that you fear. The one thing that you think can end everything else, this, this dark, looming piano hanging over your head, death. It's not what you think it is. Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. Whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, though he die, shall live. Let me close with this one quote. Thomas Watson, great Christian writer, he put it this way. I'm not sure I have this on the screen. Maybe I do. Oh, I do. Good. He says this. We, we spend our years with sighing. Can I get any amens on that? This life is not easy. This life's not easy for any of us. Each of us deal with a tremendous amount of pain and hurt. And we, we know the truth. When we read a sentence like that, I hope, if you're honest with yourself, you read a sentence like that, that we spend our years with sighing and we know it's true. It is a valley of tears, he says. Here's the good news, church. But death, death, death is the funeral. For those who trust in Christ is the funeral to all our sorrows.